Hello and welcome to another episode of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Bonavis Hicks. And Father, going off of our last conversation, we were discussing the scene at the beginning of the Passion, or I guess the middle of the Passion, the judgment of Christ. Um, when Jesus is with Pilate before the crowd. And since that episode, it is something that's really been thinking about in my head. Um, kind of the, what does that mean? Um, if I were there, what would it be like? And, and all these different uh, thoughts that had, had come to me. So as I was being raised, it was always told to me that when the crowd yells crucified, that's essentially what we're doing every time that we sin and we're, we're voting against Jesus. Um, but as, And I got that from a spiritualistic standpoint, but I really tried to think of it as if I were one of those people in the crowd at the time, knowing what I knew then. And the more and more I started thinking about it, um, the more and more I started thinking that this is something that happens in our own times and we just don't look at it this way. And the reason I say that is because I think that we get caught in this trap of knowing how the story ends so we don't look at how it is in the moment. So when I dove into thinking about what it would be like to be in that situation. I tried to put myself as much as I, I could into it. So I'm not a person who wakes up super early. And by all accounts in the Bible, this commotion started early in the day. Um, in fact, it pretty much had to, when you read of everything that happened for the Stations of Cross and for him to be hung by noon, it had to start early. So I probably wasn't there for the very beginning, but assuming that I would have shown up um, about the time when Pilate is putting Barabbas out there or Jesus, and essentially he's asking for a vote, just popular opinion of the crowd. What do you guys want? And, you know, obviously the Bible articulates it that Pilate's essentially looking for an out. He wants them to choose Jesus to be saved instead of Barabbas. But the crowd doesn't go that way. And in the Bible, it's because the chief priest of the Jews is really pushing to choose, put Jesus to death because he's the chief because, chief's biggest problem. And as I started thinking about it more and more, because we had mentally talked about that in many ways, Barabbas is the earthly power comparison to Jesus in the Bible. He's actively fighting about the oppressors who are conquering and staying in their lands and, you know, making life very difficult for them. These are the same people that 30 years ago just decided to kill every firstborn son essentially because they could because of a paranoia of someone. So I would have grown up with that and assuming human nature then is, is as it now, every dictator that causes a massive atrocity never lets his people talk about it. 
So I would have grown up in a household where we all know I had an older brother, but my mom's never allowed to talk about it. It probably brings her great pain. And I've seen this my whole life, and I've seen it to every other family in my village. And that's in me. You know, I I, I would have grown up with that had I had I been there. And we see there Jesus, who we go and we go to Jerusalem every year as an entire faith. So I also have to assume that there's more than one chance I would have met him, but I also probably not best friends with the guy either. I probably have heard him the same way you might hear about um, a public speaker coming to to talk. Yes, we're all meeting at the same place, but you know, is everyone always paying attention? So on and so forth. So I can think that he's a very smart guy and he's the right direction. Certainly the long-term, that would be awesome if we all could just live in peace, but I'm also living in a world where, you know, Every month, a tax collector is showing up, taking more than I should pay. And if I don't, the soldiers from this oppressive army are going to be there. So I give that entire introduction to say that in modern times, we think it's really easy and sinful of all the Jews gathered to just go pick Barabbas. What are you guys thinking? But as we dive a little deeper... It's something that I can totally understand where they were coming from and and where that was. So I wanted to kind of articulate that because I think in some very real ways, it shows that I'm in a bad place or potentially a bad place. But I wanted to kind of fully tell you kind of my thoughts of how I got to that answer that I can totally see how someone would yell to save the one who's trying to save the immediate problem today of this guy murdered my, my brother or this government murdered my brother. And we've lived in this shadow of pain ever since. So I wanted to give you that, give you that as my starting point. Cause obviously I know I'm coming from a spot. That's the wrong answer, but I wanted to, to say, you know, that's where I'm coming from because I think that in modern times, this happens way more often than we think And it's something that I think the Bible was trying to teach us explicitly by telling us about the judgment. What happens more often than we think? I think in modern times that there's someone who's giving us a better long run answer, but we don't choose it because of emotions that we were brought up with and potentially maybe short-term gains, even though they probably don't come to pass more often than not. Uh-huh. Well, I, uh, as a, as a methodology observation, I appreciate your reflections on those passages. And I think, uh, just the starting point in terms of prayer and reflection, we could say Lexio Divina for you to, uh, examine that passage and not just take a simplistic response to it, but go deeper with it, sit with it. You've really reflected on it. And then you try to connect it to your life. And what are you learning there? What are you seeing there? And uh, so I think that's really beautiful to, you know, instead of just uh, crucify him and the crowd is bad and um, they're 
stupid and uh, it's just all meant to pile up more pain on Jesus. Um, you know, there's certain truth to some of that too, I'm sure. But, um, you know, there is something deeper going on and there is something that we can connect with. And then that's the way that the living word speaks into all times, uh, not just being not just being the historical reality, which it is, but then really speaking into, uh, and you're, you're generalizing the themes about government oppression, worldly power, tyrannizing, the kind of uh, suffering that we can experience from that on the one hand, and then the sorts of uh, approaches we take to that, a short-term revolutionary approach like Barabbas rather than the, the long-term transformation of the heart through uh, interior work and relationships like Jesus. And so uh, looking at those kinds of things is, is a, a beautiful way to approach the scripture and allow it to challenge your own life and, and uh, connect it to something that's, that's really important. So like I say, the whole methodology of your approach, I think is, is right on the mark. Um, and, you know, we could, we could quibble about uh is this really what Barabbas represented to them? We just don't have that much about him uh, to, to know specifically, but, and, and it's always dangerous to, you know, there's some things about government comparisons. So this was not exactly a government in that time. And there's a lot of other moving parts going on that don't neatly compare with, uh, with our government systems. And so, you, you know, you, one could argue those things, but I, I think your presentation is as valid as, as uh, just about any other. So I'm not sure that it's worth uh, arguing those things. Your, your ultimate takeaway about the, uh, the importance of the, the long-term versus the short-term. And this is where Pope Francis has this funny little phrase. He says, time is greater than space. He says, you know, starting processes is uh, more powerful and more important than controlling spaces. And uh, there's something about the short term, which is about controlling spaces. Uh, makes me, I don't know, I always think of the, the board game Risk. You know, it's like you can spread out your armies and cover like five different, you know, countries or something like that. Um, but uh, then, then you spread out your armies and you can easily have everything lost in, in uh, one more turn. Just because you manage to control a space for a few moments doesn't really gain you what you're looking for, which is you know, the, the controlling interest in the long term. And that happens by starting processes, uh, you know, taking one thing at a time, starting on a, on a process. It's like if I can rush to get a bunch of money to cover my debts, Okay, well, that's one thing, but if I can actually get a job that pays sufficient amounts of money and a range of budget so that I slowly keep gaining on my debt, that's a long-term solution, which may take an extra year or two than the sort of quick fix approach, but uh, it's going to have the, the lasting impact. And those are the kinds of uh, things that we want to think in terms of is, is that that long-term game, that long-term process that, uh, you know, not just sort of firefighting and putting out fires uh, in, the, in the short term, although obviously there's a place for that. We don't want our house to burn down, uh, but also establishing a, a steady process of handling deferred maintenance and repairs and things like that are better than just fixing every leak when it, when it crops up. 
getting stuck in that kind of whack-a-mole process. So, um, so yeah, I think it's a it's a really valuable takeaway from this particular gospel passage. And and there's always a little bit of a tension in the New Testament. So, having said that, long-term processes, this kind of thing. What does Jesus say? Uh, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough evils. Uh, today has enough evils of its own. Uh, you know, look at the flowers of the field and the birds of the air. Doesn't our heavenly Father clothe them and feed them more wonderfully even than Solomon's uh, court? And so there's a there's a kind of tension with that too. We don't want to be so focused on the long term that we lose sight of today. And so we're we're always living between the space of, you know, we could think of it as the space of the rosary now and at the hour of our death. Uh, so some, we're always sort of living in between. Those are the two guaranteed moments in life. And eventually they'll collapse and become the same moment. But in the meantime, we are stretched between these two moments of now and the hour of our death. And so we're both living now and we're trying to set out a process so that when we finally land at the hour of our death, when now becomes the hour of our death, that we're in a place that our hearts are really at peace and we can make that ultimate surrender to the Lord. And so that's where, you know, your, your look at the divine judge, uh, not just the, the judgment of Pilate or the political process of the moment, not just this election or, or my political party or my particular momentary victory, but I want to keep my eyes also on the divine judge and make sure that my life can be held in account before him even if it doesn't square up with the earthly judges and the earthly powers. And, and that's, again, where our, our faith, our conscience, our fidelity to Jesus, our fidelity to the truth that he's revealed to us, these things are the, the criteria by which we live today. Because that's the other thing is, as much as we may look, none of us can guarantee when the hour of our death will be. I mean, we don't know where that landing point is. And so we can't perfectly plan out that process. Uh, we can only set things in motion that making the right decisions day after day, we can trust will lead us to the right end. And so, so again, there's this uh, kind of tension between now and not yet, between today and the hour of my death, between uh, setting processes in motion, but still uh, living in a certain amount of blindness today, planning for the future, but also knowing that we can't guarantee it. Uh, all of those kinds of things are, uh, are are part of the tensions that we manage in 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 real life, in in our daily life, in our personal lives. And I guess that's an unsolvable question. Kind of like when I asked you, how do you teach how to raise a child? <laughs> there, there is no true right. quantifier to it. Um, and so I, I guess that 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 leads to the. Uh, the the other thought I was having going back to the the passage there that um, just as we are taught that blanketly as you said there real quick the the crowd was bad and they were wrong that you know that the, there might be some value in trying to figure out where they're coming from and um, you know obviously I just did that with the group that condemned Jesus to death and. Quite frankly, I, I see a scenario how I could easily be in that group um, based upon, you know, looking at it. So, um, you know, I, I, the answer is all we, we strive to, to fight for innocence. Um, and th- but there's also that human nature that 
I got hurt, so I want someone else to feel pain too. And, and, and the fight away from that. And I guess in a certain way, it's a calling to almost disregard our negative emotions at the time and, and to call innocence to be above that. Because I think that, well, I mean, using using abortion as an example, there's nothing more innocent than a, a baby. And yet we're, it cannot defend itself. Innocence, in its, I guess, in its nature has a very difficult time defending itself. It makes me think of the um, analogy you gave us back in December about since Mary was sinless, she didn't have defenses. Well, another word for sinless, I believe, is also def- innocence, that you know, you, you're, you're not out there. And I think that that is something that we as American people definitely struggle with. And this whole concept of becoming jaded and numb to everything as a general defense pattern and just as a result lashing out to get my get revenge for my pain and um you know as i started with this it, it's not the side that i wanted to be on as as i thought through it more and more based upon all the teachings i had up but seeing how i, I could be in that side so just a a thought putter and i i had there and and um just something that that really strikes me and it makes me wonder how many blind spots do we all have now when someone is trying to articulate a message that is correct, innocent, you know, long-term better that we just won't listen to or, or ignore. Yeah. Well, that's the right uh, approach to have. That's a, a, an approach of real humility. We should have a kind of healthy self-doubt. Uh, while we need confidence to make decisions and live today and move forward, at the same time, we need a certain openness, certain a healthy self-doubt that we can call our own conclusions into question. And, you know, these are some of the kind of battleground that happens at, uh, and it gets stuck in political processes that we then end up on teams and, you know, kind of a tribalist uh, approach to things and uh, things like, you know, what economic policy, what sort of international affairs, what environmental policy, what, you know, at their best, these are all things that are aiming at the long term in terms of earthly, our earthly lives. And at their worst, they're, you know, people pushing around. We've become so jaded by uh, people pushing an agenda who claim the long term gain for everybody but then are also working their own short-term advantage in the process. Uh, corruption, to say it simply. We're, we're so jaded by corruption among leaders who, who are in this space. I mean, there are people who study economic policy and study international policy and study environmental policy and who are much better informed than I am. But it's hard to trust them because we've, we've been so uh, hurt, scandalized by, by corruption and past decades that it's, you know, why should I trust them? And then everybody tries to become their own expert, but really they just end up aligning with one or another of their favorite experts. And we're sort of scrambling for the people to trust. But I think the basic attitude that you're bringing forth, Joe, that like, I I can't be so self-assured that I am convinced I have all the answers to all the problems. And I, I need to at least call into question my own motives and 
how I might be clinging to something or promoting something? And is there a better way? Is there somebody who is trying to is trying to help me, but I'm too close-minded, too hard-hearted in order to listen, trust, follow? And uh, so again, there's a kind of tension there. We we don't want to be gullible, but we want to be uh, able to be led, uh, docile, and that is. Uh, another way to say that. So uh, we want to be teachable and th- those are, but those are real virtues and, and uh, we, we can, you know, faith really helps with that as we open our hearts to the Lord. Um, Mary was not gullible. And, and that's where uh, I think innocence, uh, holiness, sinlessness, I think those are good words to put together. I sometimes contrast innocence with purity in the sense that innocence is, um, although I suppose the, the the more accurate contrast would be naivete and purity, that uh, purity is a virtue that is developed, tested, and proven, uh, whereas innocence is maybe not yet being exposed to evil, not being, being untested. Um, not necessarily. We use innocence in both ways uh, of, of uh, something... We talk about innocence being restored by the mystery of Easter, by the power of the resurrection, which is a very beautiful thing. A lot of people think of losing their innocence through their own experience of evil uh, and and personal sin, and then can become kind of despondent about that. Uh, but uh, the power of the resurrection can restore innocence. That's what we say at the Easter vigil and the exultant. Um, that the power of this holy night can restore lost innocence. So uh, in any event, innocence, sinlessness, holiness, that there is a real openness, there's a transparency, there's a teachability, but also there's a sensitivity to evil, to manipulation, and uh, an unwillingness simply to be, it's not, it's not naivete, it's not simply uh, being gullible. It's not just uh, believing everybody who claims to have answers, um, but there's a certain discernment about it. Innocent as doves and cunning as serpents. There's shrewd as serpents. So that's the hard balance to keep, that we, we do want to be innocent and also shrewd. And uh, it's easy for either of those to sort of take over the other one and trying to strike the balance is part of the challenge of living our, our Christian life. And, and that's very well put. Something to contemplate as, as we move forward through the rest of the week here. So I thank you for being with me here today, Father. And we hope that all the listeners out there enjoyed, enjoyed today's episode. Please, if you have not, please click subscribe and give us at least a star rating on whichever platform you're on. Uh, recently, we have developed onto a lot of new platforms as they keep springing up. So part of the way that we're popping up on those is correlated through the Apple network. So if you are using any type of Apple device, an iPhone, an iPad, whatever, please make sure you give us a star rating. And if you have enough time, write a couple sentences about what you like or don't like about the show. So we thank you very much. And we will be with you again next week.